When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, Marie, I was actually thinking, so uh, for this episode, I was thinking of different like titles and things. Mm. And one that I was thinking would be really funny is, I'm not a Schleeman, man, I'm a demon, man. Like in that, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, whatever, I'm a method, man. Uh, anyways, oh, Schleeman part my God. three. Did you just Wu-Tan? Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, right. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a gentleman. I'm a method man. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm. I'm. I, I. I get it. I. I. Even I, the whitest lady you know, got the reference. I'm just like, oh lord. Oh, yeah. it's gonna be great. Yeah, I should have been a rapper. Anyways, should have uh, been. All right. So last should have been. You still can be. Give me time. So last episode, we got up to the point where Schleeman. Uh, sort of like he decides to start spending all of his money that he yes. kind of made in weird ways on destroying ancient sites, <laughs> right? Like that's yeah, his he's, plan. He's amassed wealth. He's gotten rid of a wife. He's lean and mean and ready to go and, and discover and discover and pillage culture. Right. So As you do. <laughs> right. Which is the dream of all, all people. So 1868, he decides, okay, I'm going to Greece. Right. And he wants to visit the Homeric sites and, and kind of look around the different sites in Asia Minor and all over the place. And he meets with a person who becomes really important to this story, who is the English archaeologist Frank Culvert. Yeah. Now, Marie, why is Culvert important? Culvert is important because he's basically the guy who discovered and knew about the site. Right. I mean, I, that's how I look at it is that. He was uh, he was the actual brains behind the operation and had done like, all the legwork. Right. And, he, and and it's so funny because now he's he's just sort of like whited out from all of that, from any discussion about Schleeman was, you know, the single handed with his book of, you know, his book of the uh, of the Odyssey and the Iliad, you know, traveling to Rome and just, you know, having the muse speak to him through his 17-year-old wife or whatever it is, he discovers this site, which is, you know, again, just a pure work of fiction. That this was, you know, it, it there were more people involved and they don't really get very much credit. Right. So he gets to, so 1867, he meets Culver. And mm -hmm. he, Schliemann will publish his first book on archaeology, which he calls Ithaca der Peloponnese und Troja, which translates to Ithaca, the Peloponnese, and Troy, right? Easy. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he says that basically, uh, he he essentially says in that work that he has been convinced that Hisarlik is the site of Troy. Yes. What he doesn't say is that Calvert is the one who was like, hey, I think this is Troy. 
And so uh, he just leaves him out, right? He just completely leaves this guy out from the story, um, which is nuts, right? Yeah, but it's sort of par for the course. I mean, this is, again, this is how he was, I don't want to say how he was raised, but he, he definitely has this type of entitlement in his family. I mean, he has made his wealth not by being a really nice guy who's been considerate to other people. Yeah, and so yes. he... Which is which is kind of the I mean in some ways kind of the history of like a lot of science history early science that's kind yeah of, that's kind of kind the history of, the story, of history <laughs> kind of the story of history up until you know like even in modern days there are times yeah, that stuff like much, that happens yeah. and it's pretty you know yeah. but anyways so you know we never hear about the grad students that were working with Einstein right yeah, not, not <laughs> so, so much not so um, much so or the young physicists I guess I should say but anyways mm-hmm. so um. In the same work, he also claims some other things, right? He says that uh, he believes that the Greek commander Agamemnon and his mm-hmm. wife, um, Clytemnestra. Clytemnestra, they, yeah. Sorry, yeah, Clytemnestra. Cly- cannot say it. Cletus, at, you know, Aggie and Cletus are buried at Mycenae, or, uh, which uh, yep. was described at being, what's the word? Basically described in the by Greek historians as being kind of not in Troy necessarily, but like near Troy, right? Do I, is yeah. that kind of? Yeah, they're sort of those, the Agamemnon and Clytemnestra are sort of the, one of the big, the two big characters from those stories, or at least from, you know, the beginning of the beginning of one of them. And it's like, they are closely associated almost, you know, by proxy. So if you're going to discover Troy, you really, you really had better be discovering something from the two of them from this, this dynasty or from these, these, this ruler, because that's, that is what has been written. And that is what has been sort of um, ingrained as canon. Like that's, that's the proof you need to say, Hey, this is Troy. So of course, I mean, he's going to go in and make these claims regardless. I mean, pretty much regardless of what the facts are telling him that that's like, this is where, this is where Agamemnon and Clytemnestra are buried. And this is like, you know, this is ergo, this is Troy. Mm, Okay. (laughs) So it's like, it's like finding the, I mean, if in in a thousand years, right, you find the Washington monument, you assume this must be, where do you find the great, you know, you find this great mausoleum in the middle of, an area that's sort of like where Washington DC is. And you kind of figure, well, this mm-hmm. must be where the, you know, the site of Washington DC was. Or yeah. Whatever, right? If that's Lincoln, if you see exactly, if you see yeah. Lincoln and it's not an ape, <laughs> right. It's probably, right. Right. Then it's so, okay. First it's still this reality. Check. Yep. Good up on it. And it's probably Washington DC. So he's in Greek he, or he's in Greece. Now he's kind of mm-hmm. found this site that he thinks might be this, whatever. Prior to this, too, he's kind of laid down some roots in Greece uh, by marrying. You know, he divorces his wife, his Russian wife, again in that kind of weird scheme he had. And he marries in 1869 a young Greek schoolgirl named Sophia Engastromenos. Um, and he actually meets her through, like, super early Tinder, which is weird, as a marriage bureau. <laughs> a marriage bureau, which is basically like an arranged marriage, right? Right. So Legit, the- like. You come in with a bunch of money and you're like, yeah, I'll take out like, you know, five, seven, five, eight. Right. So literally the only excavations this guy is able to do 
in his personal mm-hmm. life and in his work life are through the work of others. Pretty much. Yes. Again, history. Wonderful. There you go. That's kind of history. Wonderful. Yes. All right. So yes. before Schleeman gets to his Sarlacc, has any idea that it's a thing at all, a bunch of other stuff has happened at the site already. So remember, 1869, he gets, he's kind of in the area and is convinced 1867-ish that his Sarlacc must be the site. All right? Yes. Previous to that, we had who, Marie? So we had a couple of different people. Besides okay. Calvert, we had uh, a French geologist, Frederick, oh God. Oh, seriously, dude, like now pronouncing the name. Fou- uh. <laughs> Ferdinand Fouk. Fook? Are you sure? It's, it's. <laughs> you are, right? I mean, I'm, I can't tell if you're laughing at me. That's the sad thing. All right, let's just start that one over. Fook? <laughs> Hold on. It's a terrible last Okay. No, I think it's Fouquet. Fouquet? Like, well, seriously, like, the E, like, oh, man. Where's this, where's something that pronounces something? Because. I think it's pronounced Fouquet because it's like bouquet, right? And the E is still put a B in front of that, and that's bouquet. So I'm going to say Ferdinand Fouquet. (laughs) What are you? (laughs) So close to fuck. (laughs) Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, God. Okay, hold on. Pronouncenames.com. I'm holding. Uh, Yeah, this is. uh... Yeah, it's Fouquet. Yes! Oh, man. I'm telling you what, that high school French. Pegging off. Ferdinand what? Bucky. All right. What? <laughs> All right. All right. Okay. So he definitely wasn't the first or only archaeologist or scientist that was interested in what was happening in, on these sites. French geologist Ferdinand Fouquet dug in a similar location um, in 1862 and found fresco-covered walls of different houses and painted pottery and this was all beneath about 26 feet of pumice. So there was a lot of archaeology already occurring there. And Calvert himself had begun to dig at Hisarlik. And authority, uh, authorities um, <laughs> authorities now believe that he was instrumental. That he was like, he was the person who convinced Schliemann, um, hey, you know what, if you put your money and your time here, but especially your money... Uh, this is the site of Troy. So he had, I would say that Calvert was definitely more uh, science-based and was probably a better archaeologist, but he also did not have the funding to continue digging and excavating. So he needed resources from someone like Schliemann, and I think that that's sort of where that partnership grew some roots. Mm, Got it. Okay, so... And for those for listeners too, the importance of the importance of that pumice, right? That uh, Fouquet digs through pumice rock. You know, you're used to using like a pumice stone or maybe having one. For the guys listening, it is the unknowable stone in your shower for some reason. Um, oh, women. basically, oh women, basically oh, the what a, ladies. What and a, they're unknowable rocks. What a pumice stone does is it? Um, what does it do? It's super porous. Bottles and stuff. What do they do? I, <laughs> I actually really like using pumice stones, Marie. I have. Be- right. okay. They're great. They're great. I'm, Anyways, I'm standing down. I'm standing it's down. No, it's fine. It's fine. Understandable. So 
Uh, pumice is a volcanic rock, right? It's formed. Mm-hmm. It's very, very porous. Um, that's why it's so kind of good at, you know, scratching and holding soaps and whatever and pulling stuff out of the skin and all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Pumice stones are, you know, they're volcanic rock that form from volcanic eruptions. So finding pumice in the ground there suggests that there must have been a volcanic eruption at some point. And finding it above areas that have walls and pottery and all these other shards and things suggests that there was a volcanic eruption that covered all that stuff. Yes. Sort of like Pompeii. Right. So it suggests that it suggests that there was some kind of like we said in the very kind of first part of touching on this story about Troy, it suggests very highly that there was some uh some I guess you'd say geological reason. Um for the mm-hmm. issue that occurred, right? Or for, for yes. leaving the city ultimately. Yes. Um, so, but yeah, Something so Cal- but, but Calvert mm-hmm. essentially is like, I don't have any money. So why don't you help me fund this? Cause you're a rich eccentric man who's so in love with Troy that you came to Greece and married a Greek woman. Yeah. And so Schleiman's like, all right, let's do it. Here the, you go. And so the problem, the problem of Schleiman I guess, or the problem of archaeology at the time period is that, first off, like we said in the very first series of episodes, Troy at this point is basically a giant mound. There's Mm -hmm. every time the city gets demolished, dirt is kind of like piled on top of it and a new city is formed. And so you can imagine that over time, as kind of more ground is laid to be flat, and more and more fortifications are built, and then there's natural disasters that fill it up with even more sand or more rock or whatever, that you can really quickly end up with something like, you know, like when you used to go to, I don't know, summer camps or whatever, and people would put the layers of sand one on top of the other, right? And so Schleiman, however, has no conception of this, really. And it's <laughs> it seems so obvious to us because we're describing it and everything else. But mm-hmm. he doesn't know to kind of carefully dig out this to dig out this site in a systemic way. Yeah, he's but digging down. Right, he's digging he's down for dig what he straight wants. Straight to the bottom. Yeah. Right, he he's yeah. going to go down as far as he can and try to find evidence of Troy, with no consideration for the fact that each of those layers subsequent to him discovering what he thinks looks important is also a really important part of the story. Right, and could alter what his what his assumptions are if he's exactly. paying attention. Right? Exactly. So yeah, but, you know, why bother with that? And the thing that's sort of frustrating about this narrative is he's ultimately rewarded for this, though. I mean, he, or, or it could be construed that he is rewarded for his for his shoddy uh, for his shoddy craft, because after the break. We'll tell you what he actually finds. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. And we're back. So Schliemann starts digging in 1871. He assumes from the get-go that Troy must be the lowest level of must be on the lowest level of archaeological evidence they find, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, I guess it's a good place to start kind of, right? but it, yeah. but like, it doesn't, you know, it's kind of like, um, I don't know. It's a weird assumption to make, I guess, you know, like it's hard, it's, yeah. but it's hard to know. Again, he's kind of like just starting, uh, this, he's just starting archeology span as it's a thing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, there's not a lot of rules going on, going along at the time, right? At this period of time. So where do yeah, you, there's start? not a lot of ethics. No. So where either, do you start? Right? So he just yeah. starts again. He just kind of starts digging through without any concern for what's there. Otherwise he finally yeah. discovers something of value in 1873. Yes. He finds, he, he seems to find, or he thinks he finds fortifications Yes. That suggests it is reported that he finds we'll put right, it that, way. that he believes represent the great walls of Troy, mm-hmm. although they're not as great as you'd expect. But again, I mean, there's time, everything else, so whatever. He also finds gold jewelry, mm-hmm. a special tr- a treasure, in fact, um, that well, he will call it a treasure. And it, it is a treasure. Of course, it's they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. They're from antiquity and whatever. And then also finds, you know, vessels of different metals and ceramics and pottery and all this other stuff. Now he finds this stuff and then immediately smuggles it out of <laughs> out of the country because it's his and he found it and it's not the peoples that lived there before. Right. Uh, well, I mean, there's there's even some question about like, did he smuggle it in? Like, it's there's some question about, especially with the treasure. It's I think if you think about it, you know, if you you've you know, yes. This this site or this area is rumored to have archaeological finds, right? Like, but that's not that doesn't necessarily equate into treasure. Like, that's exactly what you were talking about. Like, we're gonna find some, you know, some shards of pottery. We're gonna find, you know, places where people lived and sort of more like everyday life. Like, this is this is how they lived, which is I would say probably like ninety eight percent of archaeology is uncovering culture and you know, and trying to preserve it. It's not digging for treasure. And so all of a sudden he finds a gold treasure that's pretty substantial. And like you said, and then smuggles it out. But yeah. like, was it there to begin with? So he, mm-hmm. he called the treasure will eventually become known as Priam's treasure. Mm-hmm. Um, Priam, uh, Priam being uh, because he believed that they were from the Homeric king Priam. Mm. Uh, currently, they sit in the Pushkin Museum in Moscow. Pushkin being a famous Russian author who helped uh, helped normalize and popularize the Russian language. Marie. Anyways, um, nice. I had to learn Probably a lot about somewhere. I had to learn a lot about Pushkin in in high school Russian. Um, so, anyways, the treasure itself. Can we just pause for a moment and appreciate the fact that you took high school Russian? Dos Vidanya. Um, so 
the treasure itself, the treasure oh itself, the God. famous, the famous photo of the treasure is actually of Sophia mm-hmm. Schleeman, his wife, yes. wearing those Second jewels. Mrs. Schleeman. Right. Yes. So she, so they will call them the jewels of Helen. That's who knows whose jewels they were, but basically it, it's this treasure hoard that he finds contains a bunch of stuff made out of copper, like shields, cauldrons, um, vases, diadems, blades of knives, um, goblets, all just metal stuff, a whole bunch of metal stuff. Just a right? whole bunch, like just a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Like, so this is a pretty good hoard. And it is. we also should call out, like, again, I think that that is, you hit the nail on the head. It's like a very famous or mostly the most famous representation of this treasure is of her wearing it, which again is just sort of this massive vanity project, right? It's like, it doesn't really matter where these, this, these artifacts came from or what their true story is. They're immediately appropriated into jewelry for his young bride. Yeah. And kind of to, to substantiate himself too. Cause like Schliemann is now, you know, getting up there in age and is, you know, not too much of a treasure if you don't mind me saying, but it's sort of like, it's, it's even more gross. Cause you know, here's, you know, here they are being, you know, worn around. Ah, yeah, Anyways, and, okay. and he immediately starts telling tall tales about the treasure, right? So this oh, is from this is from his own um, – what's the word? This is from one of his own works. He says, quote, mm-hmm. In excavating this wall further and directly by the side of the palace of King Priam, I came upon a large copper, copper article of the most remarkable form, which attracted my attention all the more as I thought I saw gold behind it. Um, in order to withdraw the treasure from the greed of my workmen – and to save it for archaeology, I immediately had Pados lunch break called. While the men were eating and resting, I cut out the treasure with a large knife. It would, however, have been impossible for me to have removed the treasure without the help of my dear wife, who stood by me ready to pack the things which I cut out in her shawl and to carry them away. Now, a couple <laughs> problems with this. Number one, <laughs> his wife was in Athens at the time visiting her family. So, oh, so hmm. yeah, he just, so it, it wasn't really his dear wife. No. And so we, and we don't know where the treasure came from. Even it, right. you know, it's exactly, there's all these, he is a con man <laughs> at yes. his core. And this is a great yes. story, right? Yes. So yes. he ultimately what we find or what we now think is that he likely, he likely excavated down to the very lowest layer, which we call Troy one. However, mm-hmm. Troy six, the sixth layer of the city was likely Homeric Troy. Yes. Which what is what he was gunning for. Right. So he just dug right through all that crap. Just, just right? yeah, <laughs> I don't want any of that. Screw I don't want this. This doesn't look interesting. I mean, yeah, let the, let the surf steal this stuff. Whatevs. Like, yeah, that's ridiculous. the other thing I love is he's like, I had to keep it away from them. They'd take it. And meanwhile, he's sneaking out of Turkey. Right. Nice. He's just got, nice. yeah, got knives, you know, every, mm-hmm. yeah, every way you can hide them. So um, he, again, discovers this, starts talking about this being potentially Troy in 1874, and then is immediately uh, sued by the Ottoman government, who owns the land at the time. And had a right, and I mean, a right. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know what, how else to call it, but it's on their land. It's part of their cultural heritage. 
kind of their stuff, dude. Walk off with it. Yeah, kind of yeah, can't kinda leave. Kind of can't leave the Ottoman Empire with Ottoman artifacts. Um, yeah, you know. Yeah, we so, don't come into your house, drink all your beer, <laughs> take, you all, know? take all your set your furniture on fire, and then walk out. No, we don't. So uh, <sighs> yeah, it's it's rough. He gets sued. The Ottoman government says that he can't come back um, <laughs> to to you know Anatolia, mm-hmm. where. Uh, you know, modern day Turkey where mm-hmm. this site is and it, he doesn't get to come back until 1876. Right. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, he publishes another book, 1875, Troy and its ruins. He also starts excavating at Mycenae. The Troys I've ruined. <laughs> right. The Troys I've ruined. <laughs> the Troys I've ruined. Yeah. Um, starts digging out more stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Does find some things, of course, but again, um, Again, he just is not careful in his excavations. No. And so just the stuff that he does ends up making more damage than if they had just been left behind. It's very similar to reports, I feel like, of grave robbing, you know, or yeah. of, of looting, I guess I would say, where, you know, the stuff that the the stuff that the looter thinks is important is never the important stuff. You know, it's, no, you know, no. they're, they don't, they never care about like the hieroglyphics or the, you know, the things that would showcase that this is an important thing. Right. No, they only care about the value of something that's an artifact that's shiny. Yeah. So kind of rough, kind of rough. Um, that period of time is where he will mm-hmm. believe, he believes that he has found the tomb of Agamemnon and um, Clytemnestra, Clytemnestra, Clytus. Um, and so again, publishes another work, 1878 called Mycenae. Um, and so really he, he's away from Troy during these time periods, but Uh is eventually allowed to go back, um, at 1878. Which is amazing. Right. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so again, he's just kind of traveling around the countryside, ruining archeological sites. And so he... He does he does execute again, like we said, in 1880, um, mm-hmm. finally starts to execute again, uh, supposedly is hoping to find the treasury of Minyas, um, which is in Boetia, doesn't find really anything there, then is finally is allowed back at Troy, does a third excavation in 1882 to 83, and a fourth one in 1888. Which is amazing, but they let him back in. It's craziness. It's got to be about money, right? That's what I'm thinking. Probably, but you never know. Um, So at first he's all on his own, right? He's just got (laughs) his wife. But after that, Mm -hmm. in his second, third, and fourth excavations, he is joined by some actual considered to be pretty good archaeologists, right? Right. But they're probably preserved stuff. (laughs) Because it's also, we should say that he had been like for the last... You know, for the last seven years or so up to this point, he the well had run dry. He, his he wasn't finding very much or at all. So it's also that probably took a great toll on his financial well-being. Yeah. And really, I mean, he doesn't I mean, he the, the things that come about at the end of his life or I guess towards the end of his career, we should say, um, mm-hmm. are probably more legitimate archaeologically than the earlier stuff, because again, they're being done with kind of a careful hand. He in particular works with, um, Emil Bernouf, um, Rudolf Virchow, and then Wilhelm Dorpfeld. Dorpfeld, great last name. 
Um, mm-hmm. And Dorpfeld in particular is considered to be kind of a kind of an important figure in the development of uh, what's the word? Uh, the development of archaeology, I suppose. Um, yeah. Specifically, he is said to be good at um, stratigraphy, which is kind of the idea of looking at the strata or layers right. of of ground. Right. That you don't just dig to the bottom. <laughs> right. You did what? Right. You don't just dig to the bottom and hope you find something good. It's like, oh. oh. But uh, Schliemann will eventually die in, um, actually he dies on, on Christmas Day, 1890, um, from an, a really bad ear infection, which sounds crazy today. But it was a curse. Right. But back back then was like a lot more serious because they didn't have antibiotics Mm -hmm. and, you know, good stuff. So that and that's kind of the end of Schliemann's career. Right. Now. It would appear from the outside looking in and we keep we kind of keep crapping on Schliemann, you know, and we're sorry, but his. Sorry, not sorry. But yeah, I mean, yeah, his career. Marie, give us. Why, when yes. does the view of Schliemann start to kind of curdle, right? When does it change? I, I mean, I would say he's still warm in his grave, pretty much, is how I would look at it. I mean, I think, again, the critical science-based approach to archaeology, you start to see come in sort of in assistance with his work towards the end of his life. But then even towards the end of his lifetime, it's clear that you know he didn't do all of this excavation or discovery himself that people like Frank Calvert um, actually deserve a lot of the responsibility for discovering what is considered Troy at Hisark and that that is you know but basically I think one of the things that came out of it is that the people recognize that the way he went about things, even though it was sort of, again, this impassioned, romanticized, colonial view of antiquity, um, ended up, like, hurting our knowledge of actual antiquity itself, right? Because we destroyed it. Like, again, we had, he had this sort of idealized notion of what it, of what he wanted to find, and kind of just um, destroyed anything else that didn't didn't fit that, didn't fit what he thought it should be. Um, And he clearly, like you were saying, he was a con man. So all of his self-promotion and the methods of like, of, you know, of, of any critical thinking that would have cast any sort of doubt or questioned any of his, any of his claims, you know, while he, while he tried to eschew them, during his lifetime, I think that that came out more and more as soon as people started to realize that, you know, that he didn't do all this himself and that, that there were a lot of faults with his methodology. In, but yeah, in some yeah. ways, in some ways he reminds me of Gilderoy Lockhart from Harry Potter. You know what I mean? Really? Where? So for hey, a Potter reference, this is good. We haven't had one of these in a so while. Great. Go on. I know. So go on for those that haven't read the books a hundred times. Like I have mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Gilderoy Lockhart is a professor who's introduced in the second book, Chamber of Secrets. Mm-hmm. Um, he is spoiler alert ahead for a book that's like 20 years old at this point. But um, 
and has had movies made from whatever. But anyways, yes. he um, he claims to have he he is famous in the wizarding world for writing all these books, dramatizing his exploits as a great uh, wizard fighting the dark arts. So he yes. he's got these books that are all about him fighting werewolves and witches and or not really witches, but I don't know warlocks or you know whatever, right? Evil yes. things, vampires and mummies and ghouls and goblins and all this other stuff. Um, and then, it, but it turns out at the end of the book that he made all of it up. He stole other people's stories and introduced himself in them and then kind of bundled stories together and did all these other things. A lot of stuff that Schliemann is accused of having done, right? Um, yes. Schliemann, yes. We, we said he wrote a tremendous amount of books about his works as an archaeologist and he's really in some ways responsible for popularizing archaeology as a field but like but like you were saying marie he is famous in some ways for the inconsistencies in his stories as well or or i guess actually infamous right yeah um there's there are thoughts by modern historians and archaeologists that he bundled his finds together. So in other words, mm-hmm. maybe he did find all of Priam's treasure at that site, but certainly he would not have found it in one giant, like in a, in a huge tomb, right? Um, under, right. under layers of layers of rock. There was just this, you know what I mean? He just fi- happens to find pristine, this, per- yes. right. This pristine treasure hanging out. There's no Truth. way that happened. Right. They also no. think that he likely, he might have just based on the, inconsistencies in the the stuff itself they also believe he might have taken uh finds from other sites and kind of just like tossed them in the sand (laughs) you know and just to make it seem like a site was of more importance (sighs) right so and and frankly they're better his own his own reputation and his own yeah right and so it makes the things that he says you know makes the things that he said he did and accomplished nearly impossible to trust. Even though he helped popularize archaeology in the public mind, he probably did more for the funding of archaeology in terms of it being popularized and something that government started to care about and, you know, all these other things. He's probably responsible to some great extent in a lot of that. But again, it's... It's all kind of based on a on a myth of himself and on a myth of what he found. Yeah. And there's something I think I think list, long-time listeners of the show know how how annoyed that makes me. That's <laughs> that, well, that's somebody's, you know, uh yeah. it, it's like fruit from the poison tree, right? Yeah. Um well, so I look at it as if Schliemann is very much like a tragic Greek myth, right? Mm. He's He had this passion and this desire and this love of Troy that ultimately he destroyed it, right? So he, he, he fell so much in love with the thing that he couldn't have that he ultimately uh, brought about its own ruin. And he didn't even realize that. Right. So he's like, he's like, um, tantalist, tantalist or, or, um, narcissist or narcissist. Exactly. Right. That he basically is this tragic figure, but couldn't see his own flaws, couldn't accept his own limitations in any of this. And also couldn't like, he couldn't, um, 
he couldn't share his his success or his learnings with anyone else, which besides being the basis of science, right, is you're, you're discovering these things to teach and to learn were a huge part of the stories that he loved, which was, of course, based on the hero of, you know, the Odyssey was on Odysseus, but it's also on um, a group of people, right? And mm-hmm. the heroic efforts and the heroic, um, the heroics of a group of people. So it's sort of, to me, it's, it's really ironic and kind of sad in that way of it. For as much as he wanted this thing, the thing he got was was really just sort of a pale, sort of probably ultimately unsatisfactory to even him, you know? Like, he probably was never satisfied with finding what he thought was Troy. Well, I can— It disappoints him himself, right? Which is such the Greek myth. Well, you know what the funny thing is? It's very much so, I think, yeah, like you said, it's the dog who— it's the dog who chases the car. And then when he mm-hmm. catches it, he doesn't know what to do with it. And I think in some ways too, it's more, it's maybe that's not as good an analogy, but I did just rewatch the dark Knight, Um, so that's why that oh. story is in my head, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like, um, it's like meeting your hero. You know what I mean? It's never mm-hmm. what you think it'll mm-hmm. be. It's, it's mm-hmm. never as good mm-hmm. as it was in your head. He built right. it up to such an extent that yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure that in his mind, he was going to like fall through a cave or something, and find, you know, find the palace, right yes. of Agamemnon, Agamemnon, yes. right exactly. Like he was gonna, you know, but that's not it's, you know as opposed to it being just like you know layers of city jelly in between a peanut butter and jelly sandwich of pumice stone. You know, he didn't he didn't find what he thought. Now, well, he didn't want to work for it either. I think that that's the other thing is it's immediate gratification, right? Which is not what science is about in a lot of ways. It's about like a lot of hard work. Well, you actually make a really, that's actually a really interesting point. It is very much Mm -hmm. so like those memes that are up on the internet all the time that are like, you know, uh, on like Facebook pages that are, you know, I effing love science or whatever, where people that are like, you don't love science, you love data. You know, like you, you really like pictures of stuff, but that's not even useful data, right? Like you, you would hate doing science, which is mostly Excel, um, which is fine, but it's not which great. Which is labor. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. It's, it's like huge stretches. I imagine not exactly being a scientist myself, but pretending to be one. It's like huge stretches of work without well, it's like, yeah, it's something like, coming to fruition. It's like any job. You know what I mean? It would be when I was a kid, I thought it'd be awesome to be in horror movies. I don't think it would be awesome today when I can't remember things that I just said 10 seconds ago. And also I can't sit still for makeup for, you know what I mean? Like I can't even imagine how challenging that is in its own way. So anyways, Schleeman, (sighs) ultimately Marie Schleeman, a, a a tragic figure. I would say, just like you said, Agreed. Kind of crazy. I I ultimately feel, I feel bad for him in a lot of ways that again, he probably never was satisfied with, with anything that he found. No, Um, no, probably not. Which, which, yeah, sad, sad stuff. But maybe hopefully our next, the next person, the next archeologist we get to will, will, won't be a complete and total jerk. Let's try another one. We'll Let's try another one. So listeners, be somebody out there next series. We are going to do one more archeologist. Then we are going mm-hmm. to do Kung Fu myths. Ah! Ah!
I'm so excited. I know. That's some good stuff. All right. We love you, listeners. Thank you for listening. Good night. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at MadScientistPod or at Team Giant Squid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. 